Good morning, Hannah. Thank you so much for coming on Coffee, Calm and Connections podcast. I'm delighted to be speaking to you and I've listened to loads of your other podcasts and read your blogs and I think you're fabulous. So thank you and welcome. Oh, thanks, Sarah. It is good to be here. Do you want to give everybody a bit of background about who Hannah Wilson is? Yeah, so um, I'm a clinical psychologist. So I've been working uh, for, well, about seven years now as a qualified psychologist. So I guess interested in lots of different things, um, but especially around compassion and how we kind of um, are compassionate towards ourselves. And yeah, I guess all things well-being and mental health. then it sounds like this is the right place for us to be talking about all things uh, well-being and mental health. So just for people listening, Hannah and I have had some offline conversations on it. And the theme for this, I'm really excited about because it ties into a load of reading that I'm doing and, and conversations that we've had. And that is around this idea or illusion about what happiness is and how you get it, which ties very much into uh, compassion in a in a in in many ways as well. Do you want to give us your thoughts on that, Hannah? Yeah, I think it's something that comes up in lots of different areas, probably of of life. In terms of when we think about happiness, we often use it as a bit of a kind of catch-all global word um, for, I guess, a state that we think of. But that illusion, that idea of it that's sold to us is maybe of this um, slightly idyllic kind of Garden of Eden style place where we're protected from any anxieties and from any stresses and where we will just feel really good and really content and really satisfied all of the time. And I think whilst that's a really lovely idea, as in that would be a lovely place to be, unfortunately, what we know is that that is not, it's not a realistic kind of place to to aim for. And actually, I think that by doing that, we actually set ourselves up sometimes to feel more stressed, to feel more anxiety, because we've still not made it to that place. And I think it can add extra pressure or expectation that probably isn't that helpful to us. Two books that I've read recently that uh, I think tie nicely into this topic are Sapiens and Soul for Happy. And both of them touch on this idea that happiness and life expectation are intrinsically linked, which I completely buy into. And uh, Soul for Happy, Mo Gaudat, gives the, um, his algorithm for happiness, which is your perceptions of an event divided by your expectation. And happiness is when those two things coincide. So if you're looking at a particular event or time in your life and whether you were happy or not, that's one thing. But I think if you're looking for sustained happiness, if that ever exists, then I like this idea that that's not the Garden of Eden style perfection, but what it actually is, is when you've managed to pull your perception and expectation in line with each other generally, so that your the way you experience life is much more in line. What do you think of that? Yeah, I guess one of the things I've found really helpful for me as well as for people that I work with is thinking about like values, which I think relates to to what you're just saying there of sometimes we think happiness comes from a um, like a fixed material thing. Like it's about how popular we are or how many likes we've got or how much money we have or the car we have, you know, quite static things where actually what we know is things like happiness come from 
doing things that align with our values so the things that we really care about that kind of motivate us that that we value in life and I guess that fits around I think that idea of expectation and perception in terms of if those things that we're doing achieving seeing experiencing are aligned with our values then that tends to um, move us towards a much more kind of meaningful place I guess a, a place of more meaningful reward maybe can you give me an example, like what you mean by a particular event and a particular value and how, how those might coincide? Yeah, so I guess um, a value might be helping others and say so that actually when we help others, we feel like we're moving towards something that we value, something that matters to us. Um, there's a, a sort of a little motto, if you like, that can come with it of, of do what matters. And that doesn't necessarily mean in a in a global save the world kind of do what matters sense but a do what matters to you kind of sense and so I guess that might mean actually when I I'm trying to think of an example I might do something big as it were like volunteering but actually it might also be a little moment where I smile at someone when I'm outside and I know that that little moment might have just kind of cheered that person up and actually it cheers me up as well that little moment of connection again so thinking about it doesn't just have to be really big things that we do it can be little moments as well because I think the other illusion maybe around happiness is that we while experiencing happiness won't experience other emotions where in reality we might be happy about one thing whilst we're also anxious about another thing or sad about another thing or angry about another thing we can feel more than one thing at one time um whereas I think we again have this idea that once I reach happy then everything will be great and I'll feel happy about all things in my life and I guess the the nature of being human is that it's stressful and it's up and down and very rarely do we feel good about all of the things uh, that are around us I think. Do you know I had a conversation with somebody yesterday in fact somebody was my dad and what I said to him was I'm happy like I'm really excited and enjoying life at the moment and I'm scared because something's going to come and trip it up. And the funny thing is, in October, we had exactly the same conversation, exactly. And two weeks later, we lost a family member to COVID. We went into lockdown, dark nights, homeschooling there. And I, and I said to him, you know, I've got that same feeling of like contentment, but I'm scared. And then I stopped myself and I reframed it based on something I'm reading at the moment. And I said, every time we've had that bump and, and something bad's happened, actually we've come out stronger. We've come out with better work processes. I've come out with a better understanding of, of a particular anxiety or, or event that might child or children have faced and felt closer actually to my 11 year old definitely it's almost like the teenage years she shut me out and, and then we found a little opening and so there are positives that have come out of a period of four months of real hard time so maybe what I should be saying is I'm feeling settled and actually I wonder what the next bump is going to be when it's going to come and what I'm going to learn and that is then bringing my perception of how I feel and what's going on in the world in line with an expectation which is very real because it's life and bumps happen. Obviously there's a whole difference between thinking that, knowing that's how I should think, feeling that and then acting that but I just I think that's quite an interesting 
like that was a whole thought process and I thought wonder if if that will help yeah and I think I do think language is actually really important like it might sound really uh, small as in just changing how we say something or think about it but that does have a real shift for us a lot of the time and it's actually something that a client um, someone I worked with once said to me that really stuck with me and that I now tell lots of people about and try for myself as well actually is using the word and instead of but so quite often we will describe something and then we say but and then we by doing that we kind of put a line through everything that came before the but and we only really focus on the bit after so it might be I had a really good day but then I came home and we had an argument or um, things were going really well but then there was a, a tragedy a loss and it sort of means only that bit after the but exists almost whereas if we can use and then they can coexist. So I had a really good day and then we came home and I had an argument or, you know, things were going really well and then we had a loss and a, a kind of tragedy. And it's that sounds really tiny, but it, it really shifts, I guess, where we then sit with it and how it can impact on us and where we make sense of it, I think. Um, so, yeah, I think language is really important, the way we frame something. I really like that. I think that's really powerful because just in the two examples you've given... You're right, but draws a line through it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make that, I'm gonna make that a mission for me to to replace an a but with and. It's surprisingly That's... difficult. <laughs> you catch, I still catch myself a lot where I think, oh no, there was another but. How would I reframe that? But that's fine. It's uh, it's not a uh, beating yourself up for still using but. But I guess if we can notice and yeah, think about, okay, how would I reframe that? What would that be like? Um, that's part of the battle, I think. I think you're right. And I think almost the times where but creeps in are the most powerful times because the but and then the acknowledgement of it is where you recreate the neural pathways, isn't it? So actually we want to be saying but and going, no, going to reframe that. So I'm going to try that. And I'm also going to try that with my kids as well. Because I mm. think it's very, very powerful. Yeah. Um, just on the the sort of illusions and the the way of life, an analogy that um, I came to uh, it wasn't my analogy that I heard the other day was this idea of the elephant and the rider, and one of the sort of illusions of life that we carry around with us, which can impact how we feel, or certainly in my case does a lot, is that of control. And I like this analogy. If I am the rider and I'm sitting on an elephant and I'm telling the elephant to go left and the elephant goes left, I'm in control. But the reality is the elephant is going to go wherever the hell the elephant wants to go. And I've just got this idea that somehow by me sitting on top of it, I am in control. And control for me is something that causes me quite a lot of worry because I constantly feel the responsibility of controlling a situation and I'm trying really hard at the moment to sit back and go how much control do I really have here and then letting go that is so hard to do do you have any yeah. advice <laughs> I mean it sounds like you're on the right lines in terms of trying to take that that step back I think there's a lot of narratives I think in our society and our culture that suggests we should have control over all of these things and that I think what can come with that as well is a sense that therefore if those things aren't in my control it's because I'm doing something wrong or there's something wrong with me um in a similar way to that idea of 
you know, happiness will be granted when I've earned enough money, I'm popular enough, I'm attractive enough, I've, you know, hit all those milestones. And therefore, if I don't yet have that happiness, it's because I haven't yet worked hard enough, or I haven't yet earned earned enough. And that sort of, I guess, cycle we can get stuck in. And I think the same is true of, of control. I think a lot of it is about, yeah, taking that step back and thinking, is this something that is within my control or which elements of it might be because I guess often there are parts of situations that we can have some influence on and there are other parts that we just won't and don't and that's a hard thing to tolerate sometimes and I don't think there's a magic answer necessarily for how to do that but perhaps recognizing when we are getting drawn into that need to to find things that we can control and I guess to be curious and kind with ourselves about why that might be. I think in my experience, often when something is happening in our life that feels very out of our control, that might be those moments when we then look for other areas that we can perhaps get that sense of of mastery or of control or agency in other places. And so if we notice, oh, I'm, I'm sort of feeling this need to really control something else, sometimes that can be quite a good... I suppose a bit of information, a bit of a cue for us of, is there something else happening that perhaps I've not fully acknowledged that I'm feeling a little bit out of control with or a little bit helpless around? Because actually all those bits are the bits of information that I suppose I think of them as bits of a jigsaw puzzle almost. And, you know, rather than just kind of flinging them all over, it can be good if we can maybe just think a little bit about where does this one fit and what's it telling me about perhaps my wider kind of picture or situation? Sometimes I, it makes a lot of sense, but my problem is sometimes I feel like I've got all the jigsaw pieces and my entire life is built around trying to fit them together, but I'm looking at the wrong picture to try and match it. So I'm never going to fit it or I've got half of one and half of another. And sometimes I feel like the pressure to fix the jigsaw or to understand what's going on with the jigsaw is as much a pressure and I wonder if that comes back to my need to control it Mm. so just to give you like you know I've got three children I I work full-time I'm trying to run I'm trying to um, be healthier I want to make sure that by the time I'm 50 and 60 that I'm healthy which means I need to look after my health which means I you know, need to eat better. I need to um, give my children more time. I need to help them to get the right ideas around uh, eating well and, and, and exercising and being kind to themselves. And I need to give them this idea that they can only control certain things and not control other things. And I need to be a good wife. And I actually haven't really spoken to my husband today. And I know that he's got a job interview next week. And actually, I didn't give him any. And, and actually, that's that's a, a control. I'm trying to control the direction of my life and my health, my children's life and my children's health and their mental health and their sort of integrity as a human being and, and how good they are as adults. And my and I, I find it exhausting. And, I, and then I don't do a fabulous job on any of it, but I'm aware of where my failings are and therefore, you know, becomes this too many jigsaw pieces all muddled up together. How do you take a process like being aware of things that you're in control of or, or analyzing a situation to see where you're out of control or where you need to just pipe down? How, how do you fit all of these shoulds, to-dos in? Yeah, I mean, I think 
for me, it's been about actually stepping back from shoulds because a should usually relates to an external pressure, an external expectation that we might have then internalized. And it's usually a self-critic based idea. Like if I hear more shoulds creeping in for myself or people that I'm speaking to, it usually means that what I would think of as their critic, their inner critic is around. Um, And I think that's often a part that might tell us there is a there is a way our jigsaw should look and therefore we're kind of trying to do all of those things that make that jigsaw look that sort of perfect picture as it were and I think as soon as that's kind of where we're at that starts adding in things like failure I guess is another word that for me would be a well if we if we think there is a perfect or kind of success picture then automatically there becomes the option for for failure because I guess these things come you know hand in hand a little bit where it might be again thinking of language and reframing instead of I need to or I should I might be trying to think about I would like to or you know I would value or thinking about why what's my motivation I suppose for wanting to do those things or for believing those things would be helpful and I think that's been a really helpful question for me for some of the things I guess as I've had quite a my own kind of journey around perfectionism and high achieving and striving and things. And it's really changed over the last few years. And that's a lot of that has been about catching things like the shoulds, the expectations, the kind of, I suppose, the pressures and realizing how much of my self-worth was maybe being measured by almost like these tick boxes, as in, you know, I've done this, I've done that, I've achieved this, I've perfected that, I've shown this. And it's actually just not a very fun (laughs) um, place to be. And it's pretty exhausting as well. Um, which I guess is what struck me by your your list of things is that sort of, gosh, it's tiring even just to listen uh, to all of those different demands and things. Um, and no wonder then we feel a little bit paralysed sometimes or a little bit kind of, um, you know, we're never going to be able to be perfect at all of those things. And then we end up feeling a bit rubbish about all of them. Um, Something you've just said really struck me, actually. So... My idea of success for my children is that they will be healthy mentally and physically and happy. The next level down, to be healthy mentally and physically, you need to, and then there's a whole range of things that I think equals that. And I suppose what you've just done there is made me challenge some of those thoughts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe it's okay. Maybe their version of healthy and happy is very different to mine and maybe that's okay. And maybe the only thing that I need to do is to be there because I can't control who they are, who they turn up, what happens at school and what decisions they make. And I shouldn't control it, but maybe all I really need to do is just love them, feed them, and try and help if I can. Yeah, and I think we sometimes undervalue or downplay the significance of that experience, as in feeling loved for who we are, feeling accepted for who we are, feeling supported to try stuff out um, and know that it's okay to get it wrong and kind of, I guess, this is idea of what they call a safe base that we hope we build for our kids, which is, you know, this idea that they can kind of go off and explore the world and know there's somewhere safe to come back to, to recharge repair kind of lick their wounds learn from what happened and 
I think, again, because of perhaps the society we're in that values other things sometimes, we forget that that is like the biggest gift, the best gift you can give someone, I think, is that experience. And it's through that that we learn things like I'm still lovable despite making mistakes, you know, that actually, if anything, that's how I learn and it's okay. And that I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to have it figured out, but to trust that I'll be okay, I can be okay. Um, I think those are... Yeah, things that we probably don't spend enough time, I think, um, helping people to learn, actually. Um, so, yes, I would definitely say, like, and that isn't to say kind of, oh, well, let them do whatever they want, <laughs> you know, kind of <laughs> give no guidance. Kind of. um, <laughs> it's not a flip into the sort of, um, yeah, forget all of that. But I think it's where the value gets put, I suppose, or the focus or the priority. And also being compassionate to yourself as a parent, that there is no perfect job to do. I think it's... Um, a sort of tough reality of being a parent is that no matter what you do you will shape your children and there will be aspects of that that they appreciate and there'll be aspects of that that they perhaps will talk about in therapy later and that's just kind of <laughs> the nature of parenting <laughs> and do you know what that is so right and what what's happened particularly in the society we live in is this idea has been developed, I think, very recently, like the last, I don't know, 50 years, don't quote me on that, I've made that number up, but the, the last however many years, this idea of the perfect parent, the perfect child, I hate, I hate the analogy of the perfect, but what you should do, how you should behave, and there's so much out there that is, you know, um, you as a mum, you should be able to go back to work. It, you, it's your right and it's equality and it's blah, blah, blah. And I actually found that very, very difficult because my, um, I trained to be a lawyer and I wanted to be a mum. And I found that those two things didn't go hand in hand. But actually, there is also an element of choice and there is always a consequence to a choice. So, I found this idea that you can be and do anything that you want. You can be the CEO of whatever and you can be the earth mum was conflicting and I had to make a choice. And the choice I made was, what actually happened was, I my husband's very good and he works from home. So it, he started taking the majority of, of the childcare. And I came home from London one day and I went to pick my daughter who at the time was I don't know, 10 months old. And I had to go into the nursery and ask which room she was in. And that was like a moment where I was like, do you know what? I've been told that I can and I should. And, and actually, I don't want to. I want to be a mum. And I went in the next day and I, I handed my notice in and, um, then probably went on to work just as hard doing other things, but that's by the by. Um, but it was it was a real light by light bulb moment for me, and that's an external pressure. This it is this external constructed should that becomes integral to how you think, and I I I, I think that is hard. It's really hard, and what you've just said there about really analyzing the why and what your picture is and where it's coming from is, is quite critical. And that, that highlighting moment for me was I became a mum because I wanted to be a mum and I want to be a good mum and I want to give my children everything I can. And for me, I'm not achieving that right now. And that's my priority. And therefore 
that's the direction I'm going to go. And I'm very lucky that I had that choice and it was my choice to make, but that didn't stop the internal guilt. And one of the things I did, which I found really helpful, and I still go back to it sometimes is when I'd made that decision, I wrote myself a letter that I keep in my um, emails. I emailed myself. I've got a little folder emails to Sarah, as crazy as that might sound, which was all of my reasonings for why and, and all of the thinking process about how I came to this decision. Because I worried that two years down the line, I'd look back and go, why did you give up a career? As it happens, I've never had to go back and re-remind myself because it was a good decision for me. But all of the pressures around that were internal and constructed maybe by external societal values. But nobody was pushing that on me. That was, that was all internal. I find that quite interesting. I've rambled a lot there. No, I think there was a lot of really, uh, yeah, really interesting and really good stuff that you were saying there. Um, I think for me, like writing is really helpful. It's something that I use and that a lot of people I've worked with um, find really valuable, both in sort of expressing how we're feeling, as in I, I will not get into the science of it because it's not my uh, my expertise. But there are studies that kind of look at what almost like different bits that get unlocked when we're writing that perhaps might not be quite as easy to access when we're speaking or that, you know, it's a allows a slightly different way of expression I've certainly found it where if I just start writing sometimes I'm quite surprised by what comes out because if I kind of let it happen then my brain I guess just starts seeing the opportunity and churning stuff that I might be otherwise ignoring but also what you know what you were saying around that we think in the moment often I'll never forget this a bit like with memories I suppose you know we think in that moment this is so powerful so important that I'll always remember all of this and it's just not how our memory works we do we forget bits it fades it changes it sort of um evolves almost in our mind so I think doing that work capturing those moments those kind of really powerful motivations kind of ideas that that feels like a really important part for us and um I often encourage people to write write themselves letters or write letters around particular dilemmas or issues but I do think yeah that that sense of most of our internal beliefs they do come from external sources in terms of you know if you hear something every day it kind of becomes your internal voice and we might not know where it came from as in it might be pre our sort of memory or it might just be that we absorb things that are around us um I've worked a lot in kind of eating disorders and eating difficulties and there are a lot of narratives around weight and shape and appearance that we sort of absorb because we're exposed to it all the time and it might not necessarily be an explicit I remember X person saying literally this, but it's still a a belief we, yeah, I guess take on as our own then. And then we shape it in our own mind and it becomes our own voice perhaps or our own belief. And I think, yeah, it's a, a process that can take a lot of unpicking, but that is quite useful if we can take that time. I think unpicking is, uh, is one of the things that I've found really useful. So in my life, I mean, I've done... I had quite bad postnatal depression with my third, which was how I recognized that I was also postnatal with my first and second, but I never, maybe less so with Isabel, but, but certainly with Natalie and, and definitely again with Ollie. And unpicking some of the reasons why, because it's not, in my opinion, it's not purely hormonal. Like there was a whole load of things happening at those circumstances, which were exacerbated by post-pregnancy hormones and definitely lack of sleep uh, and the shoulds and the coulds and, and being a particular way. So through those periods, I've done, I've done bouts of CBT therapy, psychotherapy, counseling, 
never with much success, actually, if I'm honest. Although I did have a success with one person and I saw him for about a year. And that was after my friend died of, of cancer. And I was quite, I helped her with quite a lot of, um, I helped her with quite a lot of, uh, oh no, I didn't help her. I was involved. I went to some of her medical appointments with her, tried to get her on some different trials and, and she was a good friend and, and it, you know, it was awful. And, and I think that, that when I went to start seeing somebody after that was the first time really that I, I'm very logical and I think a lot and there, there's a lot of people that you need to play me back at me in a particular way to get me to be able to unpick. Otherwise, I can just shut you down without meaning to. And mm-hmm. that's one of my traits that I've been made aware of and try really hard to work with. And this guy was able to shut me down before I could stop the unpicking, which was incredibly, incredibly value and valuable and led to some moments of me going, huh, oh, did not know that about myself. But now you say it. I can see it's been pivotal in, in every decision I've made. And that sometimes you just need the right person to be able to do, or the right book or the right aha moment. One of the, and I probably talk about this in every podcast, so apologies if I bore people, but one of the um, aha moments or description of the aha moment is in Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he describes he describes everything as the inner lens and you've got to understand the inner lens from which you view the world and that will tell you an awful lot about why you view it the way you view it. And he gives us an example of sitting on the subway and this guy getting on with some kids and then the kids just going mental and interrupting everybody and you could feel the kind of palpable air of irritation and he was going like, come on, control your kids. And eventually he went over to this guy and said, excuse me, sir, but your kids are being quite disruptive. Would you mind you know, bring them back under control. And this guy said to him, I'm sorry, we've just come from the hospital where they've lost their mum. So that is an aha moment that completely changes your perception of that event. And then Mo Gaudat's Soul for Happy book goes on a particular thing, which is, which is about your, your perception of an event. And if you turn that, and the event is neither good nor bad whether it's something that you would perceive to be horrific, like a diagnosis of a horrendous illness, a car accident, winning the lottery, the event is neither good nor bad. It's the thought when you turn the event into a thought that develops this idea of good and bad, which feels ludicrous when you're talking about something like a diagnosis of a terminal illness or, you know, winning the lottery. How can that not be good or bad? But actually, it isn't good or bad until you've had the thought about it. That was those two things for me were quite pivotal in in developing the aha moment, but also understanding how you can you can sort of build an aha moment over time to to really reframe something. Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I would. Um, I suppose when I came, first came across a similar idea, it was talked about as ABC in terms of so the A would be antecedent or trigger or event <laughs> but they wanted an a uh and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, tbc doesn't really have yeah, a, exactly. a great um the b would be belief or kind of behavior um and c would be consequence and this idea that we think a equals c so the trigger or the event equals the consequence of our feeling uh where in reality it's the belief or the interpretation the bit that happens in the middle that is what then shapes or leads to the consequence so 
I think the everyday example you often hear about is, you know, if you're walking down the street and you see a friend kind of on the opposite side and you wave and they don't wave back, that if your belief, if your interpretation is they hate me and they've purposefully ignored me, then the kind of consequences, you probably feel quite rejected, quite upset. You know, you might go home and be very sad, you know, and a string of things that come as a result of that. Whereas if your belief or interpretation is they need their eyes checking because, you know, they need a increased prescription on their lenses, then the consequence and what happens as a result is going to be very different. And, uh, you know, for me, a bit like what you were saying, there was something when I first heard that that was very like, oh, actually, this makes a lot of sense. And I think I would go a bit further as well around saying, I don't think we have just one lens, but actually multiple lenses that we will see things through depending on what that context is, what that situation is but that it works both ways as well. So again, I quite love a metaphor and analogy. So uh, if you think of like kids um, sorting toys, you know, where there's kind of different shapes and you have to fit, fit the shape in, that when we receive information, we tend to have our fixed default shape. So if my shape is a triangle, then anything else, any information that fits with that triangle is gonna come in really easily. So if my triangle is a belief that I'm not good enough, any information that fits with that is going to come through really easily. If someone's throwing like a square at me, because actually they've said something really complimentary, then I tend to shave off the edges until it becomes a triangle and then it's allowed in. So they said something nice, but only because they were obliged to, they didn't really mean it. And in doing so that can become a triangle and I can allow that in. And so I think that's been really helpful for me in recognizing Am I am I doing that? Like, has someone offered me something, or is the you know have I done something? Have I experienced something that could be a different shape that might challenge that that idea, that thought, that lens? And can I find a way to allow that in as it is, rather than having to kind of shave the edges off and only allow it in once it's a triangle and confirms that I'm not good enough? Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense, and I I want to add to it and tell me what yeah. you think of this addition. I think being aware that you are triangle shaped is important, not just from what you let in, but what you put out. Mm-hmm. So, and that, that is, I, I think is so powerful. And I'm going to give you a very, very funny example that happened to me last week. Might even have been this week. I was on a conference call with a client and they're fabulous clients. It's for, not for Coffee Calm Connection, for, for my other business. They're fabulous clients and we always have a lot of fun when we're on the meetings, a lot of banter and a lot of laughing. Now, we had this funny joke about the client said something about, oh, I hope I didn't have resting bitch face, right? She said, I, I flip between resting bitch, bitch face and gormless face. Then we moved on a bit and then <laughs> I said, I'm going to talk to you about something now and I'm just going to throw a lot of information at you, which you feel free to ignore because it's it's for information. I'm not requiring anything of you. And then I said something like, if you want to put on your gormless face, I won't notice the difference. Now, what I meant by that was a criticism of myself in, I probably wouldn't notice because I'm gormless and stupid and blah, blah, blah. That, that's what the intention was. But the words that came out were actually quite offensive. Your gormless face and your normal face look the same. Anyway, I didn't notice I'd done it until my colleague unmuted himself and said, not quite sure I'd take that if I was you, and rephrased what I said in a way to make it clear what I'd said. And then we all fell about laughing because evidently I didn't mean to say it and it was just, you know, me being me. But the conversation after that was, my mum does that a lot. 
she like throws stuff out there and sometimes it's so offensive and you look and you go like what what were you even thinking when you said that but she doesn't she's not seen it as offensive she's not understood it's coming from a different place her triangle shape I'm taking in offensive way but sometimes it's really did you really say that how important is it for us to recognize our triangle shape for what we take in but what we give out as well yeah well I think like you say it's you know those those lenses those shapes are gonna are going to shape um information in in whichever way it, it goes and I think um there's something about communication as a whole that we probably find quite tricky in that we we also interpret through things like nonverbal information so it's not just what we say but I guess it's how we say it as well and that applies in both directions so we interpret our own internal kind of communication as well as what we're giving out through other things like tone and I think we unfortunately sometimes will you know someone will say something but we believe we interpret it better through you know yes they said x but I know really they meant y and so I think it gets so messy because our interpretations our stuff will come up to play but then yeah if we're delivering information in a particular tone in a particular way with particular words it's I suppose I think of it a bit like a dance and if our kind of if the steps we know match the steps someone else is offering we will create a very smooth dance but that might be a dance that's quite unhelpful actually because we've both got stuff around a particular belief or difficulty or challenge and so as much as it feels familiar and almost comfortable the sort of dance we create is perhaps not a very helpful one to either of us I might have over metaphored that a little bit but hopefully that makes sense no it makes a lot of sense and it just highlights if you add social media phones constant communications emails whatsapp snapchat messenger tiktok if you add all of that in which adds another um, method of communication and a different shape altogether but your shape is different from my shape like the potential for for anxiety um just feeling slightly not sure under all of that stuff becomes so so difficult so that's, I suppose, where compassion comes in. It's quite difficult to communicate as human beings because there are so many things at play. So maybe just be aware of your own communi- your own shape. I like that. This is going to be the shape podcast, the happiness and shapes. That's what I'm calling it, happiness and shapes. No, I think you're right. And thinking of social media, actually going back to the happiness thing of... I would not um, by any means solely blame social media for this, as in I think it's it's a... A difficulty we've probably always had as humans and with human brains but it certainly has offered us another way to see well that person seems to have reached that again that garden of eden place where you know they're always happy they're always enjoying themselves so clearly it's possible to find that place where i'm not stressed i'm not anxious i'm not worried and so what is it that they have that i don't and we get into that comparison kind of place and i think it adds to this sense of you know there's something wrong with me because i don't feel happy or because I don't have it sorted and and it's part of a much bigger conversation I guess around social media but I think it's um potentially very harmful the very one-sided kind of aspect that gets presented there and that's not to say you know we should all throw all of our you know difficult days all the time onto social media it's up to us what we want to share that's part of our responsibility but I think trying to be 
real and giving that full human picture feels yeah I think we've got a long way to go on that really my personal opinion is I want to get rid of all technology and move to the outer Hebrides and live in a hole and protect my children from all things bad but um evidently that's not going to happen so I'll pipe that down I'll put that shape away and find a new one (laughs) Hannah I have really really appreciated this conversation it's been lots and lots of fun thank you so much no worries it's been really nice to talk to you